I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi everyone, I am Victoria Turk, Features Editor at Wired UK, and I'm delighted to be talking tonight to Jeanette Winterson. Her new book, 12 Bytes, is out today, and we're going to be talking about that, uh, about technology, where it came from, where it's headed, how it fits in with our lives. If you've got questions, please do put them in the Q&A function um, and we'll get through as many of those as possible at the end of the chat with Jeanette. Um, do keep them coming throughout uh, and we'll get through as many as we can. Jeanette. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. You are my dream interviewer for this. And I just want everybody out there to know that I am so happy to be here with you tonight. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I'm honoured. Uh, pleasure's all mine. Maybe you'd like to start just by giving us a bit of background to the book. Uh, what inspired it? What's it about? I realised I was completely ignorant and that's not, a, that's not a feeling I like, it's not a place I want to be and I thought, alright, the world's changing, um, it's, it's not just about compute, it is computing technology but technology itself is accelerating so fast, it, I'm not a digital native obviously because I'm far too old for that and I thought I don't want to be just muddling around in this space, this space that is the future. I want to understand it. If possible, I want to be part of the conversation. Uh, maybe I can even influence it. It was really obvious to me that it shouldn't be a place where you had only tech nerds, maths graduates, computing scientists and physicists in on the conversation because it was going to affect all our lives, everybody. Um, and that would mean perhaps something that was more egalitarian, that was more democratic, um, where people had a voice rather than no voice. And naturally, I was concerned, as we all are, at the fact that government power is waning at a time when the power of big tech, which is unaccountable, um, not elected, um, but extremely powerful, is on the rise. And I know Google wants to take over the planet. And I thought, well, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Maybe it isn't. Maybe also our, our ideas of, 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 of how we manage society in the macro should change. Why do we think that we have elected representatives? Maybe it's better if people really under, who understand 
how the future should look, should be in charge of it, the people with all the money and all the tech. And I thought, no, I thought, no, no, that's not right. So it was really about getting involved for me and, and learning as much as I could. And so reading as much as I could, for, for me, that's always the way in. And trying to focus on the big picture. How, how do we get here? What about religion? What about art? What about philosophy? What about literature? Because we don't live in separate silos of existence, do we? We live joined up or we live not at all. Um, and the idea of, of the kind of nerd looking at the computer screen day and night um, is not real life in so much as there still is a thing called real life, which is bigger than a computer screen. It may not always be, but it is at the moment. So I thought, all right, I need to go back into what I know, study it from there. And I also need to go into what I don't know. And I had some questions to ask myself. I thought, where are all the women? Um, because it cannot be that women have such, such strange, particular female brains that they're not interested in all this stuff. So that rang some alarm bells. Um, and that's a story that we follow in the book, how women got out of tech, because they did. It wasn't that they never went in it, it was that they were actually shoved out of it. So I wanted to tell that story. And I wanted to ask also, well, okay, AI is a tool now. Everything that human beings have done is a tool. What happens if it's not a tool anymore? What happens if it sits beside us as an alternative life form? And where does this start? I thought it really starts with the Industrial Revolution, which mattered to me because I was born in Manchester where the Industrial Revolution began. And I thought, okay, Homo sapiens been on the planet 300,000 years. That's not very long. But the Industrial Revolution... 250 years old. You know, my house in London is as old as that. This is such a, a little short sliver of Homo sapiens time. And then the computing revolution, which really only kicks off after World War II, you know, with all the innovations necessary at Bletchley Park. Um, and, and this, this, this massive shift, um, that's been happening, which, which seems to me to be an evolutionary shift on the grandest scale, which will affect everything. So it was all of that. And I thought, even if you don't understand it, you must try. And it will be like trying to learn a, a new language. It will be like trying to master a new discipline. Um, and I think we shouldn't sit out there passively waiting for things to come to us. We should go out and find the things that interest us. Uh, and then we have a little bit of control over it. You know, I mean, your own background, we were talking earlier because you said you, you, you were good at science and you were good at the humanities and languages and you went into languages and then you came back into science and tech. Um, and it's exactly that that interests me, the rounded picture, the bigger picture, the overall picture. Um, not just, it isn't a little, a little tech book. It just is not that. And it's not the history of Google or Amazon or any, uh, of anything like that, of Wi-Fi. It's to try and look at us, humanity. You know, we've developed this. So what happens now? Right. You're supposed to know the answer to that question. This is the point where I say, Vicky, what happens now? Oh, wish I knew. Um, but you actually have quite an optimistic view, I think, of what happens now or what happens next, or maybe what could happen if we you know, take advantage of the current moment. Where do you see AI kind of fitting into our human lives? You've, you've said it's sort of an evolutionary change, potentially. Mm. What, what does the future look like, do you think? God, I mean, predictions are very frightening, aren't they? I mean, one of the things in this book that interested me so much, and, and there's an essay in there called From uh, Sci-Fi to Wi-Fi to My Why, you know, as everything becomes personalised, you know, which is, is, is the buzzword um, for getting more of your data and more of your money, um, was that so many of the dreams of the past have become the everyday truths of the present. You know, whether it, it simply, this is before e even AI, the dream of powered flight, uh, for instance, and in, in terms of AI, the dream of being 
able to just communicate with each other across time and space instantly. You know, you don't need a crystal ball to do it. Um, now you just go on Zoom and th there's the other person on the end. And right back in 1964, you know, there was a BBC um, Horizon programme with Arthur C. Clarke. It, you can get it on YouTube. It's fab, actually. They've got all this scary drumbeat music and a picture of the Thames. But there's Arthur C. Clarke saying in 50 years from now, you know, a man, of course it's a man, will conduct his business from Bali as well as he can conduct it from London. And he was talking about satellites and transistors. You know, and, and satellites were just going up into space. The Russians had shoved up Sputnik 1, so the Americans had to rush in and do the same because it, you know, it was the Cold War battle. Um, and that satellites would go up there uh, to Get, take signals up, beam them back down again, and that transistors, which really, which are something like out of the magic world, they're like the sorcerer's, sorcerer's apprentice, the thing that got smaller and smaller and smaller, um, would revolutionise uh, computing power. So you wouldn't need any more, you wouldn't need bulky vacuum tubes and miles of cable. Yeah, when you look at early computers, they would fill this entire bookshop. Uh, even the size of a wardrobe would be considered a desktop back then. And I thought, God, you know, they really understood in the early days of computing technology, where this might go. You know, Jack Good, um, who was Alan Turing's pal at Bletchley Park and who worked um, on 2001 A Space Odyssey um, with Stanley Kubrick, he's the person who called AI our last invention. And that was in 1965 because he said, look, if when we've done this and it's no longer a tool, which it is now, but an alternative life form that sits alongside us, it's game over. Not in a bad way. He wasn't a dystopian, but just saying we won't have to invent anything after this, A, because we won't be smart enough and B, because there'll be no point. So I think we, they were really prescient, and those guys, and, and we think of them as guys, but as we will discover, they weren't all guys, um, with this vision of where this would actually go. And I think now there's a lot of naysayers saying, oh, no, it'll never happen. You'll never be able to upload your brain. AI won't ever have a mind. It won't have consciousness. It won't be intelligent in the way we think of as intelligence. Um, I think that's probably a very unlikely view. And given that how much of sci-fi has become your everyday reality, the things we could never imagine happening have happened. I'm optimistic because I think, look, this is happening. It will happen. Um, what's more important, it's not, not even how it's controlled or who controls it, but who is in on the conversation as this thing is shaped and used and developed? Is it going to be for a privileged, powerful few, which will make them unbelievably powerful? And then the gap will be too big for anyone to cross. So we need to democratise this because what we're releasing now, it is a sorcerer's apprentice technology. It is the genie out of the bottle. You know, this, this thing has tremendous possibilities for humankind. And it's also a thing of great terror. And I don't know which way it goes, whether it's dystopia or utopia. Because everything is neutral. It's, it's in the application, isn't it? And at the moment, the application isn't quite going the way certainly, that I would like. You know, I mean, you, you know more about data sets than I do, but given that every algorithm is trained on data sets and data sets are so skewed towards white dudes doing white dude stuff, that in itself is a problem. We don't want to look at a machine culture which amplifies every existing bias that we presently live under and pretends that it is neutral, that it is objective. You know, we had all the white guys saying we're neutral, we're objective. This is the way the world is, as though 
though the way the world is was like gravity, you know, instead of being propositional. You know, gravity you can't change. The way the world is, you can change. So what we don't want is to pretend that machines, technology, AI, superintelligence is telling us how to live. Nothing is telling us how to live except you, except me, except the world that we're in. So I'm optimistic because... Of course we could change it. I'm pessimistic because I think, fucking hell, you know, we always get it wrong. <laughs> what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, how do you think we could get to that reality where we do democratise kind of our vision for the future? Because if you look at the moment, as you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, the power does seem to be concentrated into a few powerful men's hands, right? Yeah, a few powerful, <laughs> yeah, uh, Google, Amazon, yeah. They're currently fed Facebook. with us, so they're trying to, you know build the biggest rocket ship uh <laughs> oh him he's the worst i think i think jeff bezos is the worst he's a ridiculous person um i think do i th- I, I honestly think uh, you know that the whole google ethos is still there i think they really believe they could do a better job than most governments and the way the governments of the world are working at the moment they're probably right and that in itself is scary and you know we've seen in the pandemic um the excitement and enthusiasm from from the big tech companies that here's a real opportunity to push things through that would take years of arguing about civil liberties about surveillance about intrusion on privacy um, but they're also saying no no if your kids are being schooled at home you know let, let's make this fun let's make a platform for it let's make it different their kids aren't going to be schooled at home um you know the rich and powerful will always have what they've always had which is the best of everything um and yes you know that is the fear but at the moment the simplest thing that we we could do is beg our governments to be a little bit more educated and a bit a little bit less ignorant you know here in in the uk we had dominic cummings who is really just like a suicide bomber i mean i presume he'll just explode himself in time um who had a vision of of the uk as, as, as some sort of science and technology dystopia where nobody from the humanities would ever be allowed to do anything and you'd have to have a computing science degree in order to even exist and that would be entirely wrong what we don't want is a, is a place where only people who are doing maths physics computing science uh, electrical engineering building the platforms doing the programming are in on the conversation and there is a kind of wall of ignorance around many people it doesn't matter what age you are you know it's not even people as old as me um you know you work in all this but it's it's younger people as well thinking oh it's okay um it doesn't matter that i give everybody all my data it doesn't matter that i don't have privacy anymore i think we should start thinking yes maybe it does matter and realize that in some senses it's an in, it's an international emergency in that this thing is developing really quickly and we don't know about it and it's not like say the manhattan project where they were developing the atomic bomb um something very specific and particular um with devastating consequences when it was detonated as we know but which was also constrained and contained this is not a technology which is constrained and contained it's in everybody's lives whoever you are wherever you are and that's why we need a more democratic approach uh, and that's what we've not got and a key part of that which is a common theme through the, throughout the book is the need for women to be involved in this. I was actually really interested um you know as someone who's supposedly into tech I hadn't realized quite how much worse one. we'd got than we'd been in the past. I Ooh. sort of assumed that we'd always had this gender imbalance and yes there always was an imbalance but you found some some great examples of actually women used to be more involved in computing yes. than they are today. I thought exactly as you thought. I and I don't know why I just went along with that assumption. Um or rather I thought 
you know, we were talking earlier, you said people think, oh, it's a pipeline problem, that everybody's just all moving through the system. Um, but it isn't. You know, I thought at first it was something like, you know, the fact that in the UK at the beginning of the 20th century, only 5% of medical doctors were female because you just couldn't do it because you couldn't get degrees, you couldn't practice, blah, blah. And now over 50% are. And obviously women's brains haven't changed. <laughs> it's society that's changed. Um, and I thought maybe it was something like that, that there was just, we just needed more time. No, because women couldn't get degrees in this country uh, until the mid-century. They couldn't get a mortgage. They couldn't get credit till the 1970s when I was alive. <laughs> ah! um, so obviously it's just progress. We just need more progress to happen. But then when I looked at it, what I discovered was a very different story and a really disturbing story. Some of some of you, I mean, some people watching this will have seen the movie Hidden Figures, which is about the women who worked on the NASA project. So revealing the work that they were doing and how they were just overlooked and undervalued as well as underpaid and then just written out until they were rediscovered. And that was exactly what I was finding, um, that women were very much at the heart of. And it's not just Ada Lovelace and Mary Shelley at the beginning, the visionary moment. Um, it's following on from that. Um, with the at Bletchley, 10,000 people worked at Bletchley Park during the war and 7,500 of those were women. And a lot of them were doing the decoding work. They were working with those vast computers, Colossus Set and Bomb, um, just, uh, working with, yeah, you know, these are miles of cable, you know, masses of vacuum chambers. It's boiling hot. The thing's breaking down all the time. These women were electrical engineers as well as programmers and they were doing it. And afterwards, of course, the UK had a great lead in computing technology because of what had happened during the war. And women were absolutely at the forefront of that because they knew how to do the stuff. But they were downgraded as clerical work. And at that time, computing development, which came through the University of Manchester, it was called Victoria University then, where, Manchester, where I was born, um, developing uh, computers. Um, very, very male thing, not so many women in there. But actually women doing the, the physical work, the programming, it was really there. But again, clerical. Um, the women who did the first stored computer in America were called clerical workers. And when it was launched in 1946, they weren't invited to the launch. They were never mentioned. And they were given this machine and said, figure out how to program it. Um, and this, this involved differential equations as well as the physical. It was like a telephone exchange of endlessly plugging in and plugging out because computers worked on decimal then, not binary. So there's a massive amount of physical as well as mental work to do. And they were all there. Um, and a lot of these women, after the war going forward, wanted to work with computers, but they couldn't get promoted. In one of the, one of the most brilliant women in England called Dame Stephanie Shirley, and you should really, anybody's watching this, look at her TED talk. She's nearly 90 now, and she could not get anywhere in computing science after the war. So she started her own company, Freelance Computers, got no work, and then she started calling herself Steve Shirley, and she was off. And she only employed women, and she employed women who had been chucked out of the computing industry by the UK government. Um, and there's a marvellous picture in my book of this woman called Anne Moffat, who is doing programming the black box for Concord. She's at her kitchen table with a two-year-old looking up at her. Um, that's what these women were capable of. And we don't 
hear about it. And until 1984, nearly 40% of computing majors, uh, undergraduates, were women. In 1984, some watershed happens. Apple launches the first desktop computer, the Apple, and all the ads then are geared to young men. That first Apple ad, the teacher is a female, and it's all about young Brian and what he will achieve. From then on, the whole picture is if you're a boy, this is for you. If you're a girl, it's not for you. And it's not that women, it's that women were just were forced out. They then discovered that boys did a lot of gaming at home on the computers. Women weren't doing it. Girls weren't doing it. They weren't encouraged to do it. So they then got to college um, with prior knowledge and the girls felt stupid and the boys made fun of them. And the teachers made fun of them. The male teachers made fun of them. And so girls you know, just didn't have the confidence to say, fuck you. Um, I haven't spent all my time actually doing a computer game. You know, I've been living my life. Um, and so, of course, women thought, I can do something else. And it's a bit like you and your story. You thought, I can do something else. You know what? I'll do something else. I don't need to be with these sweaty, geeky, unshaven fuck faces who are not taking any notice of, of the fact that I'm really good at this or I could be really good at this. So women disappeared. Um, and so now you have all this, this rubbish about women don't want to do this or women can't do this. And the, the truth is that from 1984, um, women were actively disappeared from the computing technology workforce. And, and that's a tragedy. And if nothing else, let's correct it as a fact historically and not talk about women don't want to do this. You know, we have ruined things for young girls and young women and we've got to fix it. Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> no, I wholeheartedly agree. And I, as I was saying earlier, I, I often despair at, you know, the current state of things, especially knowing that once actually, you know, representation of women was actually better than it is today. You kind of think that we're always making progress and that's not necessarily the case. But perhaps artificial general intelligence could have an answer for us. Is this perhaps a new, new era for our thinking of gender? You mentioned this in your book and in some of your previous work as well. When we talk about transhumanism and how we might work with technology in the future, could that free us from our binary vision of gender of men, women, when we become maybe part computer or more reliant on AI or using these tools in a different way? Where do you see that kind of fitting into our discussion of gender overall? Yeah, I'm sure that transhuman is the new mixed race and it, it could be so liberating because AI is not inherently, intrinsically, of its nature, of itself, in any of the things that biological humans are. It's not black, it's not white, it's not male, it's not female. It doesn't have a religion, it doesn't have a gender. We program all this crap in to it, but the tool itself, as it presently is, does not have any. It's, none of those attributes are inherent in the technology. Um, you know, we put our own mindset into the things that we make and, and into the systems that we make. Um, it's, they're not neutral. They're not objective. And so one of the things that I'm hoping is that if, if AI indeed becomes more than uh, a tool and becomes something that can think for itself, uh, participate in um, what we're asking it to do, perhaps say, actually, you know what? No, <laughs> maybe this instead of that might be good. Then... Perhaps we would begin to realise that those so outmoded, uh, vicious, savage, unnecessary binaries that we live by, how we're endlessly dividing and categorising people, you know, are you male, are you female, are you black, are you white, are you a Muslim, are you a Christian, are you a Jew, all of those things by which we, we, we label, pigeonhole, discriminate often against people. 
we could see them for what they are, which is simply a construct, simply something we've done along the way in this 300,000 years of our evolution inheritance. And we don't need them. We don't need to take them forward. If we chose not to, we wouldn't have to. And if you had an AI sitting beside you that said, <sighs> should we not? <laughs> then you know, that maybe that would spark a different conversation. And also, you know, if we understood ourselves, maybe... As, every, as all the religions of the world have always understood us, as not essentially bound in our biological substrate, not this thing that we have to bring with us with, with all its confusions, difficulties and frailties. If we thought, no, this is, a, this is part of the journey, it's, it's steps along the way, but it's not the end of the story. And also we can leave things behind. It's not about going into space. I mean, it kind of might be, but the space is not the outer space. It's the, in, it's the inner space. It's our space. If we could move through these really restricted, confined tunnels of the mind where so many people live, where it's just dark and cold and horrible and lonely, uh, and into something which was bigger, open, there is no reason why not? Space is a vision. It's just to tell us there are millions of stars, so many galaxies, so much room. Um, we don't have to live here fighting for every last resource, um, just at each other's throats, trying to kill each other and wreck the planet, because somehow we believe in scarcity. And whatever AI is about, it's not about scarcity. It's actually about abundance. And the great thing is, wouldn't it be, you know, AI is not going to care about your Lamborghini or your yacht or your fancy house or your mistresses. It doesn't even have to eat. It doesn't even have to breathe. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it's a real challenge to what, it, A, what intelligence is, what consciousness is, how we could live where our value system would lie. Not in stuff, not in power, not in things, not in binaries, not in hierarchies, not in divisions, but in something which was genuinely equal in the sense that we absolutely understood that all this is a construct. Just let it go, you know, let it go. Um, that would be a most marvellous thing, I think. I love the idea of using AI as that lens to kind of oh, reconsider how we see each other. Wouldn't it be great? And, you know, little kids, we soon make them into horrible little binary numbers, but they're not. It's maybe depressing that we think we need a sort of super intelligence to be able to do that, though. Well, <laughs> unless we're telling the story backwards, which as somebody who's brought up in a religious home, I do wonder, because, you know, this is the moment where you've got the parallel lines that should never meet in space are meeting, because religion and science are beginning to say the same things, which is disturbing. I mean, where I was brought up, it's all, you know, you, you, your body is just, it, it's, it's not who you are. There's a soul that lives after that. This world is not your home. You're not confined to this. You know, all that religious stuff. And we've posited a sky god forever. All humans have. Um, more powerful, wiser, who will take us home to another place that isn't here. Um, and at its worst, obviously, that's just a way out of everything. Um, but at its best, it's also a vision. The fact that, no, this is not it. This is part of the journey. It's not the end of the journey by any means. Religion has always said that. This, this, is, this is a stage on the way. And it's got caught up with all, all kinds of bigotries and moralities, things that are false to us and useless to us. But essentially, the, at the very core, the core truth in all of that is to say, you know what? No, I'm not just made of meat and I'm going to die. Maybe I can get past this. And that, that interests me very much that we've, we've arrived at this moment. It could go the other way, though, right? And you oh, sort so of reference the kind of potential dystopian view, um, especially, you know, maybe with even entrenching the gender binaries that we currently have Much further. Worse. With the example of sex robots, you can now get uh, an AI-enabled sex robot, which seems to be very much uh, conforming to uh, sort of old-fashioned views of gender. Um, you know, they look 
a certain way. They're all generally female. They look um, like porn stars. Exactly. And they're all anorexic. They never weigh more than 35 kilos because otherwise their man can't drag them around the flat. But some people think that this is, you know, a liberating thing. Like, oh, great. You know, this is another it's sexual liberation, sex with robots. Yeah. Oh, the, you don't the, agree. The digisexuals are so onto that. And, and also I'm sort of interested in China where there's a whole group that self-identifies two dimensionals, which I find both touching and disturbing because they say, no, our real life isn't in the 3D world. Our real life is conducted via the screen. And this is where I feel we feel most at home. I, I do get that conceptually and philosophically, and it interests me very much. And so when you've got your sex bot, which also has an avatar, which has an online life, an online presence, and can chat to her other friends, you know, sex bots have friends. Um, they can go, go and speak to the other girls up there. I mean, it's obviously the minute's mad. You know, I have this vision that somewhere in the future, some, some, some feminist hackers will get into the sex bot program, and suddenly he'll come home saying, hi, darling, I'm here. And she'll say, fuck you, get out of the place. Um, because right now you've got a compliant 1950s bot-style femaleette, which is what they are, they're, they're, and who is can't go out because she can't go out, she can't walk, can't go out, can't say no, uh, always wants to hear about you. You know, they're programmed to say, how was your day, darling, uh, is always there, never gets older, never gets fat, never has a period, never gets crotchety, comes when you do because they've got a rogasm button. So all these guys will think, see, all those stupid bitches I used to date, they never used to come, this one straight on. Um, how is that going to help in the real world? I don't know. I mean, in theory... I, I kind of get it. I have no personal problem with us having serious relationships with non-bio life forms because we do anyway. What else is a sky god but a non-bio life form? And we all loved our teddy bear. Um, we will make relationships with both embodied and non-embodied AI. We will. But the sex bot thing, what pisses me off, it's about gender, money and power. And it's about men doing what they can't do in the real world anymore, which is dominate women. That's the problem. It's not that we we have this. How great it might be if you know th this was in. in a, it could be great. It really could. It could be really interesting. It's not interesting um, because guys have got it. <laughs> It's kind of disappointing, isn't it? It's a yeah. missed opportunity, the lack of yeah. creativity. Yeah, and women don't seem to want them. You know, the sex bot boys haven't really sold very well because really it's a shop window mannequin attached to a dildo. I mean, really, who needs to drag that around? You know, women know better than that. It's very boring. And either you're bouncing around on top or you're dragging him around. So, you know, women can see the inherent ludicrousness of this and they're not looking for a power relationship. It's They're not looking for a power relationship, which is why... The things aren't selling to women, I think. But China, India, huge deficit of females because social engineering. So uh, female babies strangled and chucked in the paddy field or just chucked in the river. Forget them. So now you've got a problem where there's all these guys who will never find a woman that they might have found if we hadn't intruded on, on nature's own natural selection. Um, what are they going to do? And bots are really being offered as an alternative. And again, I have no problem with it. I really don't. And some women say it's great because we, these guys are just so awful, they won't bother real women. But guys always bother real women. You know, they work with real, real women, don't they? If they're going to sit in their room all day with their sex bot and their avatar and be two-dimensional, no problem. If they're out in the world, what happens if you're their boss? What happens if I come in for some customer service? Um, even, the, even the clothes that you can buy for your bot. So if you buy an executive suit, which is very popular, she's always got to slash up the A-line skirt because, as we know, every woman boss just wants to take it up the arse.
Sorry to be so graphic on this podcast, but that's what annoys me. Whereas the idea of little eye pals, robo helpers, uh, robo pets, um, Boston Dynamics, you know, I've just got some fabulous things. I mean, it just cheers me up when I look on Boston Dynamics uh, and I see those bots dancing around because the movement has got so great now. Isn't it? And Spot the Dog is just my favourite thing ever. If you don't know about Spot the Dog, go on Boston Dynamics. All of that, again, it's just lovely. And then we totally screw it up by saying, no, let's go back to the 1950s and have a sex bot. Ah! It's interesting that you like Boston Dynamics Spot oh. because I think a lot of people find Boston Dynamics robots quite scary. Do they? Yeah. You see, I didn't know that. They, give, they bring me absolute joy. Sometimes when I'm feeling a bit fed up, I just go on the website <laughs> and I have a look at them. Um, and I find it really moving. And I think, yeah, I, could, I know I could be friends with you. Would you want a robot companion? Like, how would you see, oh, in yes. your personal life, or your would own, be how great. would you see AI fitting in? What would you I would want? love that, yeah. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind if it was embodied or not embodied. I mean, one of the things I like, the thing about AI is, unlike us, it's not in one physical form. So... It can move around. So you can have your eye companion at home in a physical form if you want. But when you go traveling, he, she, it, whatever it is, comes with you anyway as a, as a, as a non-embodied form. Um, so you can carry on the conversation and the embodied one at home can still do stuff. So you've got this wonderful, crazy vision, which is the stuff of, of, of myth and legend, where you're not confined. You are, you are actually multiple because AI is multiple. It, um, it updates, it upgrades. It, it doesn't have to be one thing in one place at one time. That's incredible. And it may be that we discover we don't have to be one thing in one place at one time. So the possibilities are for this a, a, a legion, dizzying, fabulous. Yes, of course, I would like to have such a thing. I also know that it's very dangerous. You know, um, but look, we're all programmed on data sets, aren't we? You, me, everybody. All the stuff that went in is the stuff that has made us. If we're lucky, we're programmed on on myriad multiple data sets so we can address our own prejudices, our own biases. That's what an education is for. People don't get. If you educate people, what you're always doing is challenging the data sets that we carry around with us. And one of the problems with the, you know, the AI, with the BuzzFeed, the news feeds, uh, the alt-right, the echo chambers is exactly that. You're only fed back what you already know, which is the worst kind of narrow-minded data set. It's, it's an algorithm which is saying, just do what you are, be what you are, never change. The glory is in the change. And so if I felt this, this would challenge me in a good way and I could challenge it, if I could teach my AI and my AI could teach me, that would be a relationship. As long as the data sets kept getting Yeah, updated, because we would, that's what we'd be doing. Yeah. You see, I'd be helping to update. It would be, help, it would be updating me as a data set, which I am. <laughs> and, you know, and that's partly why you know, we came in with this question. My data set was, and there it was, I just thought, you are ignorant. Get on with it. And so it's in the places that we're ignorant that we most need the help, the assistance, but also to be challenged with our pet assumptions, our politics. Um, we all grow up in particular ways and we have comfort zones and sometimes those are lovely and sometimes they're just in our way. They're not helping us. Um, so it's, it's that continual, especially as you get older, trust me on this, to be always challenging your data sets. You, you know, do not stop. Do not give up. Do not end. Um, keep searching for, because your, yourself being not one thing, but multiple things, yourself is here, but it's also out there. You can reach that other self. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. One of the questions that we grappled with and we were talking about a bit earlier is, um, you know, this idea of AI and creativity. Like, what what could AI actually be capable of? Obviously, you're a writer. You write a lot of fiction. Mm. Um, you are creative. You mention Ada Lovelace a lot in, in the book. Um, and one of her statements that um, AI could never originate or a computer could never originate. Um, it couldn't be creative in that sense. What's your take on it? Could you see... AI doing what you do or helping you to do what you do or doing what you do better one day? Potentially, yes, if it could be bothered to do anything for us. I mean, doing <laughs> stuff for us might be like doing children's books for the two to five. <laughs> you know, this thing okay, just, they're fine. Just stick them over there with some shopping and some games and ignore them. Um, I don't know. I mean, Ada was, she was, her, you know, her father was Lord Byron, the land of Shakespeare, all of that. The idea that Arch was the, the pinnacle of all achievement, so on and so forth. So she could not, she, she was quite right when she said that a computer could be programmed to do what we would think of as formulaic stuff, which it's really good at. You know, put in a few things and it'll play with it and something else will come out the other end. Um, but she thought that originating meant no precedent something that was entirely new that would jump into the world. Um, so she had a very particular and romantic with a capital R sense of what creativity and originality was. And also that's quite a modern view. It wasn't particularly a view that would have come before her father and friends, uh, who very much wanted to set themselves up as being some persons who were original in the sense that what happened hadn't gone before. And a, a, a deep personal new creativity. And it was because Alan Turing dusted her off a uh, hundred years later. Um, he wrote an astonishing paper in 1950 where he talked, you know, he, he, a part of it is called Lady Lovelace's Objection. And it was really this question of could computers ever originate anything? And he read her very carefully. You know, he was a modest man as well as a remarkable man. He really brought Ada back in after a hundred years. And he thought, this is interesting, but I disagree with her. And here are my reasons. I suspect he's right in the long run. And also it will ask questions about what is creativity? What is originality? What do, what do we mean when we make something? I, you know, I believe all humans are born creative and most of us have it knocked out of us by our education and by the miserable lives that we're forced to lead and by the endless weapons of mass distraction that has become you know, technology. So we're always diverted by what's outside of us instead of drawing on what's inside of us, which is where creativity lies. But 
I don't have any worries, anxieties, problems. Certainly, I don't have any feelings of competition with uh, an AGI system, as I think it would be, creating its own works of whatever. It will. Why wouldn't it? Um, if consciousness is an emergent property, because it must be, because where is it? We can't find it. And when we die, it's gone. Should that emerge in an AI system, then that capacity for reflection and that wish also to be expressive, to say, this is this thing I'm thinking about, this thing that's bothering me, this idea that I have. It's about wanting to express that, isn't it? So why wouldn't an AI system want to do that? But possibly not to us, because we may just look like, you know, like it just might be like writing a book for your cat. Not even your, <laughs> even your kid. You might be saying, you know, I often read poems to my cat, but I'm not sure whether my cat takes them in. But yeah, we were, we were talking about Ada a lot earlier because she is still such a figurehead of women in tech. And I yeah. was saying, like, she's, she's great. She wrote the first computer program. Yeah. Um, often kind of doesn't receive enough credit for it. Still, people want to question, you know, how much involvement she actually had. Um, yeah, they I, do. They do. It's like the Bronte zone, you know, that, that yeah. runt of a brother Bramwell wrote all the books. You know, there's, all, there's always this terror that a woman might actually have done something <laughs> so big <laughs> that loads of guys can't get their head around it. Um, so they, they have to... They, but, you know, the truth of Ada is Ada. And it was very hard to be Ada as a woman. If she'd been Adrian, she would have made sense as Ada. Uh, the probability of there being such a person of Ada is vanishingly small. <laughs> but there Ada was. Glory to Ada. And I think one of the benefits of her, which is the same, I think, of you and writing this book is, you know, she didn't come from that classical sort of tech or science background because, you know, in her age, she actually really couldn't as a woman. But so she brings in kind of those other aspects, you know, the poetry. And, oh, totally. And, yeah. With, you know, Lord Byron as the dad. I mean, how could she not? And, you know, it was because Byron had said that she was not, Ada was not to be exposed to poetry under any circumstances that her mother, Annabella Wentworth, who herself was a talented mathematician, thought, oh, right, I have to do what Byron says because he's in charge, and then got her a maths tutor, which turned out to be Augustus de Morgan, one of the most famous, important mathematicians of the age, who actually said that Ada was the most gifted pupil, i.e. boy, that he had ever taught. You know, so Ada was on to something. There's no point, you know, a, a, a load of middle-aged, mediocre males coming along and say Ada wasn't gifted. Her maths tutor said she was the, the best student he'd ever taught. So, you know, I'm going to go with him. But it's also so important to bring in those different views, not just from a gender perspective, from yeah. a quality perspective, but, you know, drawing on religion, history, culture, art. Yeah. I think often it's sort of considered those are like the nice to haves or, you know, they're not really relevant to mm. AI, but you make the case that really they... They are Absolutely <laughs> central. Because everything begins as an act of imagination. Nothing exists uh, until someone has imagined it, thought of it, and then it becomes 3D. Then it goes out into the real world. So how we feed our imaginations is so important. Uh, again, we're back to the data set. You know, what size is your mind? That's what I want to know. And I want bigger minds. I want better minds. I don't want narrow, small, fearful minds. And that's why it's so important, especially humanity students. You know, what's the point of history? History is to tell us not to make the same mistakes again, please. And that's why the book starts with the Industrial Revolution and says, actually, you know, in some senses, we have been here before. Um, we have completely changed the course of human evolution. We're not on horseback sitting in front of the fire wearing wool suits now um, and having to write a letter that will get there in three weeks. We've, we've done such a lot. And the 
factory system, the awfulness of it, the hideousness of it, the cruelty of it, for a hundred years before benefits began to trickle through, we don't have to do that. Um, we, we now have lessons from history and we have lessons about women, we have lessons about class. You know, the great thing, E.P. Thompson, the great historian of, of working class people said, look, class is not a thing like house or horse, it's a relationship. We know that we create underclasses, we create the dispossessed. They don't naturally occur, you know, like I said, they're not gravity. It's not, not a phenomenon, you can't do anything about, oop, there's a volcano, eek, you know, we've all been covered in lava. You know, it's up to us to do these things. And yes, that's why you need people in the humanities, in the arts. Um, not least because every bloody sci-fi prediction that people in the humanities and the arts, thank you very much, have predicted is coming true. Uh, and that matters. So let, we all need to bring our expertise, our thoughts, our imaginations, our quirkiness, our madnesses, you know, our, our humour, our difficulties into this and build it all together. It's not something that can be, be built over there in a, in a warehouse where nobody can go. I'm going to put to you some questions from our audience now. Oh. Um, Alexandra asks, one huge advance in technology posing big ethical problems would be the artificial womb. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, a good thing, bad thing? Well, Alexandra, no, this is, this is interesting because, again, it depends on your approach. Um, you know, we got one of the things I talk about in the book is, is, is to look at how feminism managed all of this stuff. Um, you know, Freud said biology is destiny. So if you're a woman, you are the person who's going to have to have the children and look after them, at least in the early years. And that, that has certain implications and consequences. And we know this. And many women who were in pioneers in their field chose not to have children because they knew the patriarchy wasn't going to help them. And, you know, literally, girls, you can't do it all. So, we're in this situation. And in the, in the 1970s, when a great early feminist, Shulamith Firestone, an early tech feminist, and she was absolutely vilified by her feminist sisters. Uh, and she was troubled, difficult, annoying, but also a visionary. And she was always riffing on whatever ideas, you know, um, you know, just, just as Marx has said that we had to seize the means of production, Shulamith Firestone said, no, women need to seize the means of reproduction. And she took the Freud thing about biology's destiny and said, it will be great, girls, when you don't have to do this. There are other ways of continuing uh, the human race. Well, right now, Will it even be the human race? I mean, suppose we did become transhuman. Suppose we, we do become blended. Is giving birth going to be what it always has been in the last 300,000 years? Maybe not. So maybe, maybe as our biology changes, then our ideas about what biology is will change in, in terms of women. You know, we won't simply have to think about ourselves as the, the child-bearing sex we may be able to be free from that in a good way. Now, the dystopia part of that, of course, is that there are plenty of men who would like to get rid of women altogether and see our biological function as being our only function. Um, do not underestimate misogyny. Do not underestimate it. I wish, I wish it were improving. When I look on, on the web, I don't believe it's improving. I th there is such hatred, and I don't know why. <laughs> Truly, I don't know why. You know, there's a lot of great guys out there, um, but also we're still living in the patriarchy and there is still violent misogyny, which results not just in deaths and murders every day, but in the utter, the utter confinement and misery of women across the world. So that's real. So if we stopped physically bearing children, what would it mean? It could mean liberation or it could mean in absolute fucking hell. Because everything 
at this moment. You know, we're poised, it's the whole world, it's not just tech, it's utopia, dystopia, isn't it? It's like we could be going to a really good place on this planet or we could just screw it all up and everything goes back to the Stone Age. Either that's climate change that is, is so real and apparent and that will dash all our hopes of moving forward with technology because we'll be, you know, we're looking for a bit of bread and cheese, not worrying about who's programming the computer. So there is that. But I, I don't think it is necessarily a problem that women's biological function could change. It isn't necessarily a problem. That doesn't mean it won't be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good that Alexandra's raised it. Both excitement and caution. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I haven't had any kids, A, because I knew I'd be a bad mother, and I don't like being bad at stuff. Um, <laughs> And also because I thought there's, there's loads of things I want to do and I won't, certainly won't be able to do those things uh, and given that I'll be a bad mother anyway, put all my energies into being a good mother. So lots of women do make those choices. Um, on the other hand, if, if there had been another way of doing it, well, who knows, maybe I would have done that. Interesting potential futures. Um, Cathy has a question on the politics of this um, and how can government approach the capture of their citizens' data more democratically. So what, you know, what's the solution? What policies could emerge? Taxing major corporations is such a nightmare, apparently. So can we hope that governments can get ahead of this game when they're currently so far behind? What's, what's yeah, the answer? Yeah, but they're deliberately far behind. There's no reason for this. There's no reason. Taxing corporations is not difficult. You tax them. And you make it, you make it worldwide. We just cooperate and we do it. We don't let them have these terrifying amounts of cash, which makes them more powerful than individual countries. You know, Bill Gates is richer than individual countries, let alone tech companies, Google. You just do it. If you want to distribute wealth, then you have to be firm about it. It's not going to strangle. They love these words, don't they? It's a violent. It's not going to strangle entrepreneurship and enterprise. Um, it's going to help to distribute wealth. You know, personally, I like paying taxes and I would like to start a campaign to say to people, you know, paying taxes is great. First of all, it means you've done well. You've earned lots of, I had a huge tax bill last year and I thought, fantastic. You've done really well. And then you want to put into the civic structure that you support and that supports you. If we had a propaganda campaign saying paying taxes is wonderful, like they do actually in the Scandinavian countries, um, you know, they're much more pro-tax in the sense that people understand what they're doing and what they're getting. We could do that and we could stop this absolute rubbish that tech companies somehow are so important. Um, you know, they're like feudal monarchs of old, that all the revenue flows to them. You know, that, that's, that, you know that, that's the crown. All the revenue flows to the crown uh, and then is distributed as and when the crown wishes. You know, that's what you've got with tech companies at the minute. You know, we, we got a better system than that as we faltered along with de democracy. So it's really time to stop apologising for democracy. Stop being on the back Thought. Um, stop this absolute rubbish that entrepreneurs and innovative people will be strangled if they have to pay tax or, or just do their duty to the rest of us. Not so. We would actually do better, I believe. Um, it's just that there's no will. You know, we've got a crap government in the UK. Um, they've been in power now for 11 years. They're not, they're not interested in any of this. Um, they're ignorant, they're backward, and that's why we're not seeing change. But that doesn't mean we couldn't see change. Again, it's that back to this business. This is propositional. This is what we choose. When people say, oh, we can't do this, the, the question is, why not? And then we get some answers. You know, we switched to the euro overnight back in the day when we did. Suddenly, every single banking system and financial system aligned overnight. They were prepared. They did it. 
You're saying we can do it again with taxing tech companies globally, not just European-wide? Of course we could, overnight, if there was the political will. And you, you touch on this a, a bit in the book, that obviously the whenever there's a big technological shift, there's also a big social impact. Yeah. Um, and we saw this with the Industrial Revolution. And as yeah. I say, it took you know a century or so for it people really to did. kind of be pulled up yeah. from the misery that that, that caused. Yeah. And you kind of, I think, come to the conclusion that actually capitalism is probably the best system that we have, but that it's much more flexible than maybe people think and actually not necessarily incompatible with socialism in many respects. It's not. It's not. I admire capitalism because it is Darwinian in the true sense, in that it survives and adapts to the circumstances. What we've got now is vulture capitalism, disaster capitalism, extraction capitalism. It is horrible. Right? But, you know, you even have to monetize your bed on Airbnb. Whoever had to monetize their bed? Jesus. And that's called the sharing economy. Um, you know, we have to think about these things and think, well, why do we just passively go along with all of this? You know, every IPO, whether it's Uber, whatever, what are they taking? They're taking your money. Um, this isn't a sharing economy, but it could be. You know, capitalism itself does allow people flexibility, agency, a certain amount of empowerment, but it needs to be tempered by compassion, which is what socialism offers. You know, Marx said, Marx is great. People should read Marx instead of going on about when you're Marxian radical left-wing people. Just read the guy. Marx said that socialism is there to provide for our human needs. He said we need shelter, we need security, we need education, we need access to food, and then we can provide for our human needs, by which he meant, you know, we could get on with the things that actually makes human life interesting. But if you're trying to do three three jobs in a gig economy, how can you ever manage your, your inner life, your human needs? You know, you're just struggling to survive. And that's shit. And capitalism should not have brought so many to this place. You know, in the 60s, when President Kennedy said a rising tide lifts all boats, it looked like it was true. Because after the war, the whole boost to sort of shift the world onto prosperity really worked for a while. Look, I'm the generation who benefited from that um, until we had neoliberalism in the late 70s, Thatcher Reagan. There was that whole business, 30 years, where wages were high, people felt optimistic about the future. Capitalism was working for the many, not the few. And then you get the Reagan-Thatcher moment in the late 70s. And it comes for all sorts of reasons. You know, a, a Nixon goes off the gold standard union. Actually, there's the oil crisis. There's loads of... Re you can look, it's very simple. You can just research all this. Everybody panics and you get the kind of neoliberal view. No, we're going to deregulate finance. We're going to take the safety nets away. Everything that the social contract was after the war. It has to be about all of us. Let's start dismantling that. And at first you get a rush of energy. It's like having sugar or it's like putting fertilizers on the land. Everybody says, hey, we're free. You know, in the 80s, we're all about bling and money. And then gradually you realize that what you've eroded is everything that this stands on. You've eroded the basics, the essentials, the necessaries, and the whole thing is going to collapse. And we had the financial crisis in 2008 and we didn't learn from it. We just made poor people bail out the banking system and we carried on as we were. And here we are now in this ridiculous situation um, where we, we, we're trying to put these old mindsets, somehow force the new technology into the old mindsets about the few and not the many. And it isn't that. It is the many, not the few. And that doesn't mean you have some kind of 
communist levelling out where nobody has any chance to be themselves, not at all. It means this business of let's provide the basics. You know, I love the idea of a universal basic income. What can we do? This is the 21st century. Can we not educate our children? Can we not have people living in decent housing? Can we not provide food and water? Can we not provide opportunity modestly? For pe not everybody wants to hustle and gig every bloody day. Not everybody should be self-employed. Can we not do these very simple things? The answer is yes. But our governments are backward and they're in a, they're in a mindset that belongs actually uh, 200 years ago to the early factory system. They're not in the present. You know, if you start to realise that most people do not live in the present at all, you know, Gertrude Stein has a great phrase about it, if only our contemporaries could be our contemporaries. We're dealing with people who, who live in the past, whose minds are in the past, whose habits are in the past, and we're now moving towards a future which is going to just shoot through all of that. And we could be left with, that's where the dystopia is. It's the gap. You know, is Albert Camus uh, in The Myth of Sisyphus where he says, it's not one thing or the other that leads to madness. It's the space in between them. And where we're falling now is the space in between. You've got the old mindset, you know, toxic limiting. Um, and you've got new technology, which is actually, I think, possibilities of great liberation. Um, and if we have, you know, better conversations, better leadership, we might be able to do something with this. I'm sorry, I got over excited. <laughs> no, I think that's a good rallying cry. <laughs> I don't know uh, who out there needs to hear it. I don't know who out there needs to hear it, but listen, folks, don't be disempowered. Um, don't sit at home. Be involved. That's the only thing we can ever do, isn't it? Just be involved. Few more questions for you. Okay. We've got a few more minutes. I'll, be so I'll quick. try and get through I'm as going many to as possible. These really so quickly. I can get all right. everyone's Come on, questions. I'm going to do it. Right. Um, so Celine is asking about AI and technology and fiction, and what's your opinion about the current state of fiction and what it tells us about AI? Thinking both about male fiction and female slash LGBTQA plus. Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> fiction? What do I know about fiction? Look, everything that we write reflects both the time we're in and where we might get to. And so, you know, we were all talking about this earlier, wasn't it, where we, that there are things that are leaping ahead, making changes, um, seeing the future and things which, which are resolutely clamped to the past. You know, it's like a fridge magnet. They cannot get off the fridge. Uh, and other people have already ripped and roared ahead. So, you know, you are seeing both. Um, and it, I think part of the argument, the, the trans argument at the moment, is actually the beginning of how are we going to redefine ourselves uh, as self-identified, also as hybrid, also as, as remade, not dependent on, on, on the, the biological substrate that we come into the world with, but what would you like to be? And one of the great things that AI offers, and we see it in fiction all the time, but we're also going to see it in ourselves, you know, all those myths and legends and stories, they're in every culture across time. The, sh the shaman um, isn't ca caught in this body. Suddenly I'm an eagle. Suddenly I'm a greyhound. Suddenly I'm you. Suddenly you're me. And, and that is absolutely in the myth-legend culture. Now we're saying that could be a possibility for us. Um, and, and, and I think that you know, trans folks are really at the beginning of that, saying, no, we're not caught here. We, we can go somewhere else. It's, and that's, that's also why you're getting the ire and the anger and the difficulty, because this is something new. It's the beginning of something that's happening. So you do see it in fiction. Look, they probably know. What, what I hate, I don't want boring conservative fiction about oh, kind of, you know, here I'm living my middle class life and then what's going to happen to me. I couldn't care less. Um, I want something that brings in the, 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 
a powerful and imaginative dimension because fiction is there to yeah, if you just want to read something for a couple of hours because you need to get just get out of yourself, fine. But if you want to be challenged, if 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 you want to ask yourself questions, for me, that's really the purpose of fiction, that it goes into the difficult, tricky, darker places. And it's not a comfort zone. It's a, it's a challenge zone. I don't know where this business about the arts of being a comfortable place ever came out because it's not. You know, even when you go to something which is familiar and beautiful, you know, I went to the opera at the weekend to Glyndebourne, such an elitist place to go. I've, I, I always go. Um, oh God, I was two meters away from Jacob Rees-Mogg. I had to, I, I did have to challenge him. I did say to him, sir, would you please, would you, would you please, really um, promote truth in public life and champion it somehow. You can imagine the response that I got. But I was in such a state of... I knew, I knew it wouldn't achieve anything, but I couldn't stand back. Anyway, so you can see the kind of elitist place I was. And opera is often a very conservative art form, we seem to be, but it isn't. Yeah, I sat through that opera, Kizzy Fantucci, that I've sat through many times before, and I thought, this is such a difficult piece to see in its truth and in its own right about how we love, who we love, where our affections lie, how easily we're deceived, what gender is. And the music is always on the side of the women. So you've got two things going on. You've got something which is very, very subversive going on under what you think you're seeing. And, you know, I looked in, you know, you can see all these bloody fat Tory donors soaking up. And I think, do you not know what this is? And the thing about art is that every so often it'll hit somebody and they'll think, ah, oh, and then they'll go home with some kind of epiphany, whether it's a book, whether it's the opera, whether it's a picture, whether it's an installation. It's the moment where it rips into your comfortable place. And it's like perching on the edge of the universe and, and, and seeing this, this vast outscape of stars. And you know now that you're this tiny, insignificant thing, but not fixed, temporary. We all are just temporary traffic um, through the stream of time. And yet... We can influence things and we are influenced by what we take in. And that's why I say to people, if you love art, support it, go to it, expose yourself to it, because every time you are becoming something more than you are, this is your data set, expand it. You can go there and try and close down and see nothing, feel nothing, hear nothing, which is why art can be very conservative. But it's only because the relationship is denied, that the person here receiving it is denying what is actually coming in. I think based on your answer just there, we probably know the answer to Amanda's question, mm. which is, if you're about to enter university as a student today, would you check out the arts options and study tech? Do you know what? I hope, don't choose, Amanda, if you can, try and find a way of amalgamating it, whatever that means. You've got, look, you did it. You should, you should answer this question, actually, because... Go on, answer it, because this is your story. Come on. Oh, yeah. So my background is that I ended up studying languages um, and then realised that actually I was really interested in science and tech. So became a tech journalist and got into it that way. But you don't but, regret your initial choice, No, do I you? don't regret it, because I, I think the same as you. I think it's very important that people have that kind of rounded view of the world. And there's no point becoming an expert in one thing that's really, really niche if you then make that knowledge inaccessible to most other people exactly. because, you know, you can't talk about it in a human way or you can't associate it with our everyday life. 
Yeah, that's my and you, you're right. And look, Amanda's got to follow her heart. She's got to do the things that interest her. When you're a young person, you must. You know, it's all the awful stories. Oh, you know, you've got to be a dentist. Well, actually, nobody should be because AI will be doing that soon. You have a robot pulling your teeth, so everybody's trained to be a dentist. Goodbye. Um, do the thing that you love. Of course, you must do the thing that you love. But at the same time, you might love more than you think you love. I mean, that's the surprise of being human. And because education continually narrows us down, excuse me, unless you have a very fancy education, which then tries to push you out into the world. If you've got an expensive education, you won't be narrowed down. You might manage it yourself. I mean, look at all those buffoons from Eton. But if you go through a normal educational system, you're always, you endlessly, everything's about narrowing. Here's your GCSEs, here's your A-levels, here's what you're going to study at university. You know, shrink, shrink, shrink. And we don't want to shrink. We want to go outwards, don't we? So I would say, you know, you can't rely on the system at the moment because it is not fit for purpose for where we're heading. Um, so if you have other interests, follow them. Follow your heart, but also follow your other interests and keep in the world. You might like gaming, you know, you might want to code uh, in the evenings. You might, all sorts of things you might want to do. You might want to build your own website. I don't know, but do everything. Do as much as you possibly can, especially when you're young, because trust me, you've got more time and then you just pile it all in and then you have a chance at what I would call a meaningful life, which is the only life worth living, whether you're a biological human or an AI system. A great note to end on. <laughs> Thank you very, very much, Thank Jeanette. You. Thank um, you. I think we've run out of time, but it's been oh, a God. fascinating we'd discussion. Been here till we've midnight, we've we? gone all over um, ping ponging place to place, which is excellent. <laughs> and I think quite representative of 12 Bytes, the book as well. You draw on so many different influences. Well, you, well, you were brilliant. You made this so easy for me. I mean, so easy because you were there. You were there. You were absolutely the Buddhist bee here now. <laughs> well thank you very much thanks everyone for joining us um, and thank you for your questions everyone who sent those in I hope you've enjoyed the discussion do read the book um, and yes it's been great spending the evening with you thank you thanks for listening to find out more about London Review Bookshop events visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events